0: You're listening to Certify, Canada's class actions podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi everyone, uh, we have here with us today, uh, someone who needs no introduction, we have Mike Peerless from Mackenzie Lake Lawyers in London and uh, Mike, how's everything going?
1: Uh, everything's great, you know, all things considered, no sense complaining.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, what, what does that mean? How are things since COVID?
1: Well, it's it's fine, you know. I mean, like everyone else, uh, t- it's taken some adjusting and mm-hmm. and uh, f- trying to figure out, uh, you know, the best ways to be safe and responsible and uh, and still get some work done and and uh, deal with uh, with family and friends and eh, you know, it's fine.
0: Yeah, it's a balancing act, I suppose.
1: Balancing act, sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> How are things with remote hearings, things like that?
1: Um, I mean, I I'd say um that they've mostly that kind of thing has mostly been pretty good I mean some of the judges I deal with have not been doing them mm-hmm. um, so we, we've just been putting things over um, but uh, to, to, to certainly to us to a large extent uh, you know, I've done some things that, I, you know, sometimes I would have to go to Vancouver for a half-hour hearing or something, and instead I've been able to do it from my home or my office, and it's a much more efficient way to proceed. I'm, I'm hoping that some of those things at least continue into the future.
0: Yes, I hope so too. Uh, and how long have you been at Mackenzie Lake Lawyers? Now
1: is it uh, two years or so? It's almost seven years.
0: Really? Oh, yes. Dear, time <laughs> flies. Sorry <Yep>. about that. <laughs> That's okay.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time.
0: Yeah. Great. Uh, well, good. Uh, let me just launch straight into the questions then. So, uh, you've been in class actions in Ontario since pretty much the beginning. And uh, what made you want to pursue a career as a class actions lawyer? I mean, did you just sort of fall into it? Tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, sure. I, I mean, really, I have been in since the beginning. I, I was uh, an articling student. Um, in the finishing up my articles, the fall uh, before the Class Proceedings Act came into effect, wow. and at that time, um, uh, I was doing some intake interviews for uh, for clients at the firm, and uh, one of the clients that came in um, was a was a woman who had breast implants and had had them rupture inside her body, and um, I sort of took that in originally as a potential medical malpractice case. Uh, interviewed her, got her medical records. Couldn't see anything in the records that indicated there was anything wrong with what the surgeon had done. Mm-hmm. Um, but did some uh, some digging around. Um, this was long before the internet existed. But uh, did some digging around and found out that there was a case going on in uh, Ohio, uh, in in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, about these these uh, implants and. Uh, that and I went and I uh, pulled the uh, court file from that case in Cincinnati. Saw that it was a class action, um, and had read something about potential for class action starting in Ontario. And um, and my colleague Mike Izinga and I talked about it. Um, he was a second year lawyer at the time. I was an articling student, and um, we we uh, drafted a statement of claim um, outlining the what we thought were the class issues. And um, we went to our mentor, Scott Ritchie, and uh, talked him into letting us get going. And we started the case about uh, three weeks after the Class Proceedings Act was proclaimed into force and about two weeks before I was called to the bar. Wow. And we certified that case, that was in February, we certified the case that June, uh, which was the first certified class action in Ontario.
0: So was that Debbie Bendel who you spoke to?
1: That was Debbie Bendel. Wow.
0: So that's really going back uh, back all those years and how have class actions changed do you think i mean obviously they've changed a lot but what are the main things that have changed since then
1: well i'd say the main the, the number one thing that i think has changed is that is that early on especially for the first four or five years i think the the uh the the, the procedural nature of the of the test for certification um was was clearly what was going on in every every case i, I mean uh, there were lots of cases that weren't being certified because they didn't meet, meet the procedural test, but a typical class action certification motion record would have been including the statement of claim uh, and often the statement of defense because the, most of the judges at that time required a defense as well. Um, including all of that, the whole motion record would have been 150, 200 pages. Wow. Because, because the idea of all the evidence and cross-examinations and things like that that we do that we've been doing now for the last 20 years, that, I mean, the judges at the time and, and many of the senior judges, uh, Justice Montgomery, even Justice Winkler, when he first started doing them, um, they just they just thought that it was ridiculous, that, that, that there would be essentially a complicated defense on some portion of the merits that was designed to make it tricky to meet the other parts of the certification test. In those days, you know that the courts really didn't think that was what the test was about and that and that it was too early in the process and that's one of the reasons that there were many certification motions back in those days it happened a month or so after the statement of claim was uh, issued two months after Uh, you know as as the act said and still says that it was supposed to happen quickly and it was supposed to always be the first motion, that kind of thing. So they, they happened quickly and, uh, and, and we learned a lot about, about what, it, what, it, what a class action really should look like. You know, today it's harder to tell because we inevitably get into complicated evidentiary uh, expert witness matters, that kind of thing, that uh, you know are, are just very different than what the cases used to be like.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and since you, uh, has your practice changed much since you got to Mackenzie Lake? Have you, uh, in the last seven years, have you noticed much change? Or have... not, not really.
1: Okay. It, it, yeah, I mean, I was fortunate enough that when I moved firms, most of my team came with me. And so my, I was really just, to, to a large extent, it was like moving venues. Um, you know, and some, uh, you know, some new people that it, it was nice to, to, to get on board. But other than that, my, it hasn't changed that much, except to the extent that it's changed for everyone. I mean, there are more people doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are more carriage motions. There are more consortiums. And that's that was a trend that was happening then and it's just continued. And it's probably accelerated, if anything, now.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so on the subject of carriage motions, because that's why we're here today, uh, can you usually tell what kind of case uh, a carriage, motion dis- uh, carriage dispute will arise in? And if so, how do you prepare for that?
1: Yes, you, you often can. Anyway, I mean, what what I would say is that if if you see a big, I would say most of the cases I've done in my career have been cases where a a client or or sometimes a lawyer has brought me a case. Debbie Bendall would be a perfect example. Walked in the door with a with a legal problem, um, wanted some help, looked into helping, um, and 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 we really as counsel, came to the conclusion that an individual case in that in that instance against dow corning for one person who had ruptured implants was going to be exceptionally complicated and expensive and and wouldn't work so most of my cases have been that kind of thing one person has come in and and and, you know had a problem and that's turned into a class action Mm -hmm. because those are the facts um but then there's the other sort of half of the practice and that would be the cases that are that everyone knows about right. the the Volkswagen Dieselgate case, the Walkerton water thing, um, you know, some some uh, major uh, personal electronic device uh, has a has a widely understood failure all of a sudden, and a, a recall of Takata airbags. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that, where it, we, and if, if everybody knows about it and it's all over the, over the press, then all the class action lawyers know about it, and it's easy, to, and clients are all over the place calling us, and, or, or, or they can be found in other ways, um, and, and, then, and then, you know, those are the cases you know there's going to be, um, uh, you know, or, or, or often will be uh, carriage motions because there'll be multiple firms starting the same or similar cases.
0: And so how do you prepare for that? If you know other law firms are going to be starting the same kind of thing, is there any way you can prepare for carriage right from the, from the get go?
1: Well, yeah, there, there, there are, there is. And the, the way I do it the mo- most, and I think others do this too uh, now um, is, is if I see one of those cases, I have three or four firms I like working with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I contact one or two or three or four of those firms and say, Hey, um, we got a client on this. Do you want to do it together and just put together a consortium early and try to get a good, large, um, uh, powerful consortium that will then fight off, uh, you know, other firms that come in later, um, as and, and if if that's what we decide to do.
0: Okay. And what are the issues that come up most in your experience on carriage motions?
1: Well, the the issues are are are. are are almost always the same, really. That it's it's some combination of, you know, which firms uh, can take a leadership role in the case, you know, for a variety of reasons, either because they think that they have particular expertise in that in that uh, practice area, that particular subject matter of the case, or because, uh, you know, if they have a particular client that they think wants to be uh, front and center, or because they just think it's important for their own practice that they you know have a leadership role sometimes, and then that ties back into you know how, how to divide up any fees if they're successful and how to divide up the expenses going forward and and how to divide up the work so th- those are always the issues and um, and you know, and, and some of those can be frustrating. Some some council want to talk about dividing up the money very early. Um, and that's always frustrating to me because, you know, lots of times there is no, going to be no money to divide because we're not successful. But secondly, um, I, I just don't love that that focus on it. I like to think about how, how we can do the work, how we can do it effectively. I, I always think of it as there, there's lots of work around, I, I mean, and, and only so many people who can do it. So, for example, if 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 I had if I, if my firm was at capacity doing one uh, or two very complicated cases, then maybe it would make more sense for me to have half of my people doing four cases, and but only doing half of those four cases, so that we spread the risk out a little bit, spread the experience out. Uh, there are often counsel at other firms who I have a lot of time for and can. Can learn from and who my the people who work with me can learn from and and uh, and so I like doing that and it doesn't really bother me. Other fir- some firms are, are, you know, don't like working with others at all if they can avoid it. And um, you know, that's that's just a, a different way of practicing, I guess.
0: Mhm. I mean, you said carriage disputes have come up a lot more uh, over the years. H- has that led to a kind of refining of the the carriage case law, or has it led to just a huge mess and you don't know which factors? Judges
1: are going to apply, etc. Well, I can tell you, I certainly have no idea what factors the judges are right. going to apply, or 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 even if they do apply them, how they what the result might be. As far as I can tell, it's a completely random process. So, so I hate carriage motions. Um, you know, I'll do them, mm-hmm. but I, I hate them. I'd much rather um, uh, come to some con- consortium agreement because I think I actually think consor- uh, carriage motions are bad for. Bad for the profession. They they make us as lawyers look bad, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I think it's a, I think it's kind of a crazy process the way it's shaking out now. And the fa- just the fact that you know courts have a list of factors that they say they apply. I uh, you know I I can't tell what any of those factors are. It's like it's like describing beauty or color to someone. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I I just don't I just don't I just don't think it's it's a I don't think it's there's no rigorous test involved, let me put it that way
0: right um, so then uh let me skip then to the bill one sixty one changes and we'll maybe come back to the other questions uh, later. so what you know you just described that it it's a kind of a a, a crapshoot really uh, carriage motions because you don't know which factors the judges are going to apply. so do you think the changes in bill one sixty one will make any difference to that?
1: no. Okay. Why not? I don't. Well, I don't because because I I mean the, the because I don't think they they I don't think they're really designed to have any changes. All they do is things like, you know, s- speeding it up, making them a, make it, giving it a deadline for mm-hmm. when you have to have a carriage motion. I mean, that'll just mean there's even more sloppily done carriage motions because they have to be done in a hurry. And, and and since everyone will have to do it in a hurry, um you know, it'll it'll just be even less. Uh, 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 there, there's just going to be no way for a judge to figure this out because we they're, they're, they're being done so early. They're being done far before counsel has any idea what the case, mm-hmm. what the facts of the case are really going to be. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. Even with a case like, uh, say, a, 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 a hugely public case like the Volkswagen diesel matter. There was all sorts of facts in the in the in the um public domain about about what had gone on there but there were but most of those things turned out either to be exaggerated or or just not true but if if you had if we had had to have a carriage motion I mean there were carriage motions in that case but mm-hmm. most of the people came together in a most of the of the more reputable firms came right, together sure in that. a large in, in a large consortium not you yeah. know not all some some didn't come yeah. in at all and some didn't want to and some you know just didn't make it in for one reason or another but 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 the but many of if we had had to have an actual carriage motion amongst all those firms the the eight main firms that were involved in that it would have all been done on facts that mostly turned out not to be true Mm. because we had no way of getting the real facts in the time frame that bill 161 would require so how would we have done it i i i don't know i don't think it I don't think speeding it up makes any difference. I think the only thing that does is means that y- y- there isn't some firm who works away on a case for a year, and then another firm drops into it at the last minute. That might that might help, but you know the f- the, the factors the court must consider like expertise and experience of counsel and results achieved. Uh, you know they must consider them, but they don't ha- none of them are determinative. So if you read the cases and you know the firms. Uh, it's hard to reconcile the decisions that the judges make because they you know they they also don't want to just make it so say it was my firm and the and then the other firm was a good firm but but had no experience as a class as a class action lawyer Mm -hmm. does that mean I'm going to win every one of those well no and it shouldn't mean that really Mm -hmm. because it should otherwise is there some sort of um, barrier to entry that no one can get past just because i 've done it for a long time i don't i don 't right. think that should be fair, mm-hmm. but by the same token, there are some times when there are firms that win these carriage motions, and many of us shake our heads like how did that happen so you know i i don 't i don 't know inability to appeal I think there relatively few of them get appealed anyway because they 're so they're so subjective mm-hmm. that it would be hard to win on an appeal um, and the inability to recover costs from the class of the defendant it's I, I'm not aware of I'm not aware of any cases where uh, costs have been awarded against the, you know from the class of the defendant anyway mm-hmm. uh, we I, I certainly we had one earlier uh, maybe it was even earlier this year where where the group I was with lost the carriage motion to another firm but in, even in that context, the judge awarded costs against that other firm in our favor yes. due to the way the other firm firms proceeded with the carriage motion, which made it impossible for us to answer some of the questions, is what the judge said. So, in other words, we get money from them, but we can't do the case, which seems like a very strange, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we're, we got some money from them but it seems bizarre to me that, that we didn't win in that context but, you know, there you go i'm not a judge
0: yeah there's certainly <laughs> raising questions i think in the uh the class action community i mean the the other the other big recent one is the life labs one where uh didn't justice Bellababa race some kind of reverse auction a potential reverse auction thing there i mean have you have you, it, are you familiar with that decision or
1: I, i'm familiar with it and i'm and and i've been involved in other cases where justice Bellababa has has raised the idea of a reverse auction, yes, okay. and, um, and, and, and 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 in 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 those cases, uh, he's always done it. In my experience, in um, uh, in case management conferences, mm-hmm. and and I've had other judges do the same thing. And my position then has always been the same, and that is, there's absolutely no evidence that a reverse auction makes sense for this. That in fact, a a a a, lo- a client making a sensible decision may well choose the. To a regular kind of auction where you want to pay more because you mm-hmm. get it, sometimes you get what you pay for, Exactly, yeah. and that's always sort of stopped the discussion in the cases I've been involved in. But yeah, I, again, if I was in that situation, I would I would be trying to make a consortium agreement or I'd be trying to get out early and go do something else.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, do you think the best way to save time and cost at the carriage stage is not even to have a carriage stage, is to have a con- try and make a consortium? Uh, And try the best you can to avoid a carriage motion.
1: I think, I mean, that's my, that's always my goal. Mm -hmm. That if I, that, that I, I, I always think that if you can have a consortium, then you can just divide up the work and you divide it up outside your own firm rather than dividing it up inside your own firm. And you, you get, again, half of you know a a part of one case and, and so you have to go get another part of another case rather than having one case you can do we all know lawyers who do this work who who are slow getting their share of the work done or don't seem to move a case forward enough and that's just probably because they're busy and if they only had part of the case it would probably be better for everyone so that's what i i think is almost always the best way to do it um not every firm works well in you know, in a consortium, but but most of them do if there's if there's some leadership and a and sometimes you have to have a structure and sometimes you don't. But uh, um, I, I have a couple of firms I do a lot of work with, uh, three or four of them, as I said, and mm-hmm. and most of the time we don't even come up with a formal uh, consortium agreement in advance. We just say hey, let's work together, and then we we you know over a beer or a cup of coffee we sort out the, the fair division of the fee at the end and 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 we sort out the the div, a fair division of the work as we go along and that, mm-hmm. that, that's to me that's that's the best way to do it but that's just me mm-hmm. many many people disagree with me
0: i mean we have seen more uh, in the last um five six seven years we have seen more firms come into the class action field it's not such a, a I mean, I'm not saying it was a closed shop before, but it was a, certainly a much smaller bar before. So do you think that has complicated things at the carriage stage, that you have these new players coming in, you don't know what their work is like, you don't know if you want to work with them? A-
1: absolutely, and and sometimes, you know, there, there are some firms around um, that are that are sort of more um, advertising firms, or, or mm. maybe I could say that, that that, that have been in other areas of practice, especially in Ontario um you know for some time that have now started to get into class actions for example and so right there's there's, it's virtually impossible to figure out whether they're any good at doing any work because they haven't really done any work Mm -hmm. in the past but 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 they maybe they bring something else to the table and I think we have to be you know those of us who've been around for a long time have to be at least open to discussing that and to recognizing that yeah there are going to be new people coming along and that's normal and uh how do we how do we work together um in some way that's fair because i i think it's pretty clear that the courts aren't just going to give the you know the the eight or ten oldest firms that have mm. been doing this for a long time every one of these cases that's not going to happen and I, you know and i'm i'm okay with that i don't think they, it should okay uh
0: so let's then get on to the multi-jurisdictional piece of this? Because, uh, I mean, that's that's a huge piece as well, isn't it, the carriage state, to try and figure out not only who should be counsel in Ontario, but if it's a national class action, then you have to sort of deal with all these other firms all over the rest of the country trying to do their piece or a national class action as well. Um, do you think Do you think the so Bill 161 has put in a, a bunch of provisions from the Uniform Law Conference um, uh, recommendations. Do you you think they're going to do anything to address overlapping national class actions in Canada?
1: Again, no. Uh, As far as far as I can tell, uh, I I didn't think they would before. And as far as I can tell, nothing has, absolutely nothing has changed. And I don't see how it will because again, uh, you know, I mean, other than it's made it a little more expensive, you know, now if we want to, you know, we, now we can go and fight carriage in another province because we filed a case here and that kind of thing we've done that a few times and other firms have but usually again we're putting together a consortium in any event Uh, because the fact is most of these national cases it's not it's no different um the 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 multi-jurisdictional part is no different than the multi-ontario firm thing Mm -hmm. it's not it's not really that i mean this sure there are some exceptions to this um but most of the big cases where there's where there's going to be a consortium it's going to be case there are going to be cases across canada there might be four in ontario and two in british columbia and one in saskatchewan and one in manitoba and two in alberta and one in nova scotia and and and, and one, only one in quebec because they have the first to file rule right but sure. but all that being said you know you still have to bring them all together and so the, the because and and that's it's not that we we necessarily really have to bring them all together from the plaintiff's point of view, but the defendants uh, f- sometimes for perfectly good and fair reasons, like you know that it, it, it sometimes it wouldn't make sense, but sometimes just in order to to add delay and confusion, the defendants will bring these. You know, multiplicity of proceedings, arguments up all the time. You know, of course, at the same time as they're saying there shouldn't be a class action, you should have ten thousand individual cases, but for sure you can't have ten class actions. <laughs> right. But 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 it doesn't matter if they just say it. The courts, you know, pay some attention, and and always it always um, causes problems. So I just don't see any practical way around it. The only way, the the reason this doesn't happen in the same way in the United States is because they have you know, they, they have a real federal court system, mm. and so the, 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 the court, a federal, a federal case can take precedence over all the state cases, depending on the subject matter of the, of the case, but we don't, although it's theoretically possible in some matters, it's pretty rare to bring a federal court class action in Canada.
0: Although that might be changing now with uh, times getting tougher in Ontario.
1: That, but that might be changing and, and certainly there may be more people moving, you know, if people believe that certification is going to be t- tougher in Ontario with these new rules, and I'm not sure I 100% believe it's going to be much different, but, if, if it, but to the extent that people do think that, uh, you know, some of us will, will certainly say, well, do we have to bring this case in Ontario? Why don't we just do it in Manitoba? What's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and, and as, Or as you say, in federal court.
0: So do you think uh, with those changes on predominance and superiority that Ontario, I mean, you said it's not going to make, it might not make too much difference, and, and I think I'm with you there, but uh, what about uh, the perception of, of you know, if, if a court thinks that it will be harder to get certification in Ontario, the, if the court perceives that, then do you think it'll be tempted to give the give carriage of the case to someone in Manitoba or BC or, do you think Ontario well, will fare, fare worse?
1: Well, that, that see that's an interesting question that I that I you know I, I wonder because who will be making that decision I guess in other words, let's say let's say there was a carriage motion that was being done, you know through the Uniform Law Conference provisions to address competing multi-jurisdictional class actions, mm-hmm. and that carriage motion was happening in Ontario, and a British Columbia counsel said this case would be better off in British Columbia because. The test in Ontario is harder. I mean, that'll be an interesting thing to see whether an Ontario judge said, "Yeah, you're right. You can't certify this case here, but I think you could in British Columbia." Mm. Is that is that a decision that an Ontario judge would even entertain? I, I don't know. Mm. Like, or 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 is the other possibility there, and that is um, that 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 uh, someone like me, I'm, I've got a couple cases going right now where I've re- relatively recently put together national consortiums on cases where there are multiple case overlapping cases and in both of those cases we're proceeding with the certification motion only in uh, British Columbia because of the costs issue and because of the possibility that the new rules will make a difference and since these cases will be early on in the new rules in Ontario if we, if we were to proceed here, we don't want to be the ones who find out whether they make a difference. Right. <laughs>
0: I wonder who is going to want to be the ones to find out. Um, well, that's
1: that's right. It's an interesting question, and I mean, I, I I don't even know the answer to what if you had already filed your class action and your motion hasn't happened yet? Are you under the new rules or the old rules?
0: Uh, yeah, that's kind of a mess. I think I, I don't know if anyone knows the answer to that. So right. Um, so I mean, really, I guess you said that you know the national overlapping class thing is really no different from an overlapping Ontario class action, and so do you think uh, but the difference is I guess that there are certain players on the national stage that kind of mess things up a bit uh, do you, i don't, I don't know if you want to comment on that or I'll just move to the next part of the question, which is do you think judges could be harsher on them and thereby make it a bit more efficient um, yeah
1: yeah you know um well I I, I I I hate to skip over the answer to part of your question suzanne but but i but i but but of course. You know, I, the the fact is, there are firms who who have a reputation for just starting every case and then not doing much and and waiting to see what happens and kind of getting in the way if if they don't get treated, um, you know, with some you know with some some share of the work and or the fee. Mm-hmm. So 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 and they can be very difficult to deal with because because it's not what we would traditionally uh, associate with our profession. But um, uh, but again, because there's so many firms doing these cases now, like someone's going to do that in most jurisdictions. Mm. It's rare that, that there isn't someone. And sometimes it's better to have someone who's, who's, who, who actually knows their place, understands that what they, what they provide is, is, is a, a, an actual case that could be resolved and court approved if a settlement came along in that jurisdiction. And so they, they're sort of delivering you a, a product in a way. Right. And could 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 the could could the judges be harder on them? Uh, you know, I would say they, yeah, they they could, but it comes back to the the fact that, that, that it's such an objective test or subjective test that you know many of the cases, some of those firms like we're talking about. If you look at the the judges, you know, and they go through their the uh, ability and and uh previous results and 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 the state of the pleading they say well this one's a tie and this one's very close and i have it's impossible to decide and i decide only on this final point that kind (laughs) of thing and i mean judges love to do that and i don't blame them for that i guess but i've rarely seen a judge really make a decision that would that stops a firm Like the ones we're talking about from doing exactly the same thing the next day i mean to some extent those those guys will say it's water off a ducks back to us we don't really care what they say about us this is our this is what we do so you know they don't the decisions are rarely as cut and dried as you might think they would be you know sometimes i i look at something where where there are two firms one of them is a what i would consider a leading a leading serious firm that would really do the work and really apply itself, and the and the other is one of those firms that really just files cases and does nothing, and the leading firm loses, and you just go, okay, I I don't know, I don't, I don't know why, know. I can't I cannot tell you what happened there.
0: Right. So if they're offering you a product and you know what the product's going to be, essentially, it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Is that is that's,
1: that a fair assessment? That's
0: a fair assessment. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so if if you don't think Bill one hundred and sixty one is going to make any or much difference to carriage motions, I mean, should it have tried to deal with carriage at all? I mean, it, are you saying there's no answer to this problem?
1: I'm not sure if there's no answer. Um, uh, funnily enough, because I, but, but but I I actually a lot of people hate the Quebec you know first to file rule mm. that it's you know finding that it's. Um, you know, arbitrary and makes no sense because you know it's just the first person. But there's one thing about it that is good, and that it's it's it is seriously objective. You can tell who won, mm. and I don't mind that. Um, I, I would mean that many times I would not I would not get I would not get the case, but so what? Lots of times they don't get the case anyway, mm. and, and I wouldn't have all this all this unseemly you know writing a, a motion record extolling my own praises <laughs> right. and and criticizing my you know sometime friends and colleagues mm. and, and, and i think i i find both of those both parts of that to be equally distasteful and so i'm yeah, I and so i don't do it much
0: right fair enough I mean, but then with the first-to-file rule, surely that would be the same as having uh, you know, having the 60-day the rule that Bill 161 puts in. Surely that's the same thing, where you're going to have these poorly prepared uh, pleadings filed because it's the race to the courthouse steps.
1: It would be, but you can always amend your pleading. So, in other words, no decision is being made on it. So, mm. like, it, what happens in Quebec is they, you know, and on the day of that Volkswagen case being announced... I think seven class actions were filed that day in Quebec. Most of them, most of them before 11 o'clock in the morning. They timestamped them to the minute. And, and, so, and, and the one that was first ended up being um, the one that, that got carriage. Now, one of the things about that was, was, was what they filed that morning, anything like their ultimate motion? No, nothing. Mm-hmm. It probably had 1% of the same words in it but that didn't matter they were just first so they just went and did it i mean i I know this in quebec half the time the client isn't even real there at first like because and you know they you get it filed and then you go look for a client and the name of the person you know gets changed because they need a new client well yeah that's probably because the first client didn't really have the problem right but i mean i still more i'm not sure there's it's any worse than the situation of a carriage motion because I don't think we're getting any clarity out of it I don't I may, there probably aren't enough carriage motion decisions and then follow on results of cases to, to have any science applied to this but I mm. uh, if once there are once there are I'd be very doubtful that you could prove that the best firm for that case got it in any scientific way mm-hmm. I mean there have been several uh, carriage motions I know of were hard fought carriage motions, a firm one, and then you know three years later quit the case because it was you know it, it didn't seem as good anymore mm. so and, and and then in another jurisdiction, it gets resolved for a large amount of money I mean that could happen anytime, but I guess all i 'm saying is there's no there's there's no evidence that i've seen that carriage motions end up getting you the best counsel.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, back to the Quebec question, I mean, you know, we have the first, to, they have the first to file rule, but there's also, uh, 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 there's also, I believe, that rule where if council just sit on a case and don't do anything with it, and don't you know, proceed with it expeditiously, then other council can come forward and say, well, they're not doing a good enough job and we want to replace them. Has that happened a lot in your experience?
1: In my experience, it's almost never happened. I, in fact, I don't know of any time it's happened, and okay. and and part of the reason for that is it would be extremely hard to tell that a counsel was just sitting on it. I mean, half the time, you know, like I mean, unless unless there was some real evidence of that, because you know, many times you were in situations, especially in Quebec, where where uh, you can't get a court date at all because the j- judges are often not specialized into class actions, and so. You've got a judge who, who, who's been given the case, but then gets assigned a long murder trial or something, or, 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 or they have different, you know, vacation kinds of schedules, and then one counsel can't make it. The, the delays in Quebec are even worse than they are in Ontario, where I already think they're terrible. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think it would be very hard to tell, and I've never seen that happen. I've, I've seen one time where, where it was threatened and, and then the, the other counsel just got going. So, Fair enough. Y- you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way of getting them going I guess. That's right. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, so there was just one other question I wanted to ask, and it's sort of a, a fairly small piece of this. But you know, in, in a few carriage decisions, judges have said, "Oh, uh, counsel on carriage motions should get their own independent counsel to represent them, so they don't have to do this distasteful thing of you know slagging off their peers or you know promoting themselves or whatever." Do you think that's an advisable thing to do?
1: I do certainly in any um large complicated one of these that's what I would do um because because i I just wouldn't be able to go stand there and say you know i'm the greatest mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> i would I would not be able to go to the courtroom and listen to that so so uh, so i would I would hire someone and and there are people who've specialized oh, not specialized but who have a little practice in that area um, Mike Kaizenga is one because he's he's well known to both the plaintiff and the defense bar and so he can he doesn't he doesn't do plaintiff's cases anymore but but the plaintiff's lawyers all know him and so some of them have hired him to do that Mm -hmm. um i I can you know i think um someone like linda rothstein or someone like that too there there are people around who would be very good at that and it does take the the personal side of it out because you know i think i think uh you get some some objective advice at least someone like um an independent person who you hire would be able to sit back and go, okay. Well, what, what, sh- what should this pleading say? What, mm. what are the factors that w- that I could argue uh, on your behalf? How could I help you? Whereas I think it's it's like any other time when you're when when a, a person has themselves for a lawyer, right. right? It's usually a bad idea. So I think it's a bad idea in these things too. I, I can say I've I I, I have done it um, both ways, but. Um, but I, I, I much prefer hiring someone. Part of the problem with that is, you know, it's another way of adding a whole bunch of expense to this already spectacularly expensive thing. Mm. So, um, you know, I know that in there's at least one case I know of where the the two sets of uh, independent counsel that argue it each had bills of about $200,000 for, oh, for a carriage motion. So, again, might have made more sense to make a deal.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess you can't force people to make a deal. So, uh, Okay, so uh, do you, did you have anything else to add on the carriage point, Mike?
1: I think that's all, all I have, although I will say, when you say you can't be forced to make a deal, one time in the Viox case, at a case management conference, there was a big consortium that had been put together, and the only person who wasn't in the consortium was uh, a, Susca- a, a well-known Saskatchewan lawyer. Right. And J- Justice Winkler ordered me to go to saskatchewan and make a deal with that person and i said can you order me you can't really order me to make a deal can you and he said yes i can how, how are you what are you going to do appeal me so i so i and, and I, I i did go to saskatchewan i couldn't make the deal then but a couple of years later i made the deal so there you go yeah excellent
0: uh, okay, and so I guess my last question is—it's more of a, a general one. I mean, you know, we're all working from home now. We're all dealing with this COVID thing. How do you, uh, as a lawyer—and this is just to finish off—how do you, as a lawyer, have some kind of work-life balance? How do you, how do you sort of get away from the job when it's all around you at home?
1: Well, I'm pretty fortunate. I have a—I have a, a reasonably good situation. I'm living in London. I have a. I live sort of on the outskirts of the city. I have a relatively large house with a relatively large yard. We've had a nice summer. I like to go running and bicycling and things like that, and so I'm doing that a lot. In fact, I'm probably doing it significantly more than I otherwise would because mm-hmm. I don't have to drive even the 10 minutes to work most days and uh and and i don't and I'm not traveling for work nearly as much, so I'm going to kind of miss COVID when it's over.
0: <laughs> Do I say that too much? Uh, no,
1: I I, don't, I I feel sorry for the for my friends and colleagues who have you know young school kids at home and that kind of thing and certainly people living in the bigger cities where they're maybe in smaller places and high rises and things like that I think it would be it would be kind of well it would be much harder and and I think it's harder on young people generally but um, I, uh, you know but I'm I'm not I'm really not able to complain about it that much.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on to the show, Mike, and thanks very much for your time. Well, I think we'll call it a day there.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks very much. And uh, all the best, and all the best with getting through the rest of COVID if there's another side to this. <laughs> okay. Okay, thanks. take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins, and the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.